If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. A passage that's in your bulletin as well. Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 16. We're continuing our study in this book. If you are not familiar, we uh, go through typically uh, books of the Bible. We just kind of walk through them and, um, and, and see what it is that God intends the way that He has written His Word. We b- do believe this is God's Word. And the book of Ecclesiastes is both a refreshing book and it's a hard book in, in many ways. Um, it talks a lot about the, uh, the struggle of life and the struggle under the sun. That's the perspective of the book. As we look out, can we name what is honest? Can we say this is my experience of life? And at the same time, in our honesty, can we be faithful? Can we not let the brutality of life and the, the hardship that we experience drive us away from God, but can we actually remain faithful and stay in His presence during the hard things? And so we've been in a, a series of passages that are uh, pretty negative in tone, and yet they're refreshingly honest, and we're going to see another such passage this morning. It has to do with dust, the dustiness of life, the living under the sun and everything turning to dust, something that I think people in Phoenix can uniquely relate to, right? Since we live much of our year under a brutal sun and uh, much of the, the things that we have in our yard eventually turn to dust. I mean, this is a Southwest uh, kind of passage for us this morning, so hope it speaks to you as we read it. Starting in verse 16 of chapter 3 and continuing through to the end of chapter 4. Let's read this together. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive." But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all the skill and work come from from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw... Vanity under the sun, 
One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. I saw an uh, internet meme a couple of weeks ago um, that had the the guy with white hair, I know you've seen this guy in, in, in memes, he's pretty much in every uh, internet joke uh, out there, and he's got that pained expression on his face, and there's one picture with him in front of the computer, and one of him holding the coffee cup looking at you. I know some of you know, if you don't know, then ask uh, someone around you after the service. But uh, the, the meme said, uh, I'm done being an expert on infectious diseases. Now I'm going to be an expert on foreign policy. <laughs> uh, maybe a little close to home. Hopefully we aren't guilty of that. Hopefully I'm not guilty of that. What it's, the meme is talking about is that we've moved as a culture from talking about COVID-19 and all of the, the opinions that we've had on that subject to uh, talking now about war overseas in Ukraine. And uh, it's a shift that kind of has, has made us all wonder what's, what's really going on. And it, it in a sense, it's new, and it's, it's making us uh, highly aware of, of, um, of just all the things that we don't understand. But in another way, it's actually highlighting how much history repeats itself or how others have said that history rhymes. I mean, we are in a time when... It very much harkens back to like 1918 when we had the Spanish flu and we also had World War I going on and it feels like there's some kind of echo happening in the world. Really, for the last 100 plus years, we've wanted to know what is the trajectory of our world in the West here. And again, when we talk about these things, as I'm, I hope I'm always careful to do, the kingdom of God does not equip, you know, does not mean just the Western story. God is all over the earth doing all kinds of things. But we, as we experience just life after World War I over 100 years ago, we've, we've wondered, what's the trajectory? Like, what, what's going on here? Are we kind of in a cycle? Are we progressing? And there have been different visions of, of, of the future that have been cast out. I was thinking this week about the, the poem by W.B. Yeats, uh, who wrote right after World War I, very famous poem called The Second Coming. 
And it's a terrifying poem. It's a prediction about where the world is going. Right, in the, right after World War I, he saw all the destruction and he says this, some famous words maybe you've heard before, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. We've lost touch with nature. We've lost control of history. The falcon can't hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's the tone of the poem. It's the second coming. But in that phrase, the second coming, he's not referring to the second coming of Christ. He's talking about the coming of some great beast, some great anarchy that the, that the world is going to experience because of this war, because of the bloodshed and because of the tension on the international scene. And that poem still resonates. We still see it quoted from time to time. It's still true in our experience that things fall apart, that the center doesn't hold. At the same time, there have been other versions put in front of us of where history is going in the West. For instance, Francis Fukuyama in 1989, after the end of the Cold War, in the fall of the USSR, he said basically that that democracy will prevail. That we've reached basically the, the pinnacle of, of human government. And, and though it won't be perfect and will probably fall off sometimes, to the extent that our governments become more representative, democratic, where we have free markets, then we can expect to see this is the pinnacle of human history. Others, like Samuel Huntington, then later wrote a book against Fukuyama's perspective. I've been in this. I, I've, I've turned into, this last week, the expert on foreign policy that I am not. <laughs> he says, no, Fukuyama is wrong. It's not that we've reached the pinnacle of human history. It's, that, uh, it's not exactly that things will all fall apart, nor is it that, that everything will get better. He says, basically... We can expect in the modern world after the Cold War eight or nine cultures to then be in war with one another. And we should expect to revert back to opposition. Some people are saying, looking at the current events in the world, that Fukuyama was right. Some are saying Huntington is right. The point is, we want to know what is the trajectory of history. What is, where is the world going? And is there any kind of sense of purpose to it? Or does it always go back to the same things? That's a very human question. It's a very real question that many of us are experiencing. And I hear it in different ways as some people express like, I wonder, is the world getting better or is it getting worse? Because I feel like I can make a case either way. To ask a different question more appropriate to our passage this morning, what is the biblical trajectory? What should we expect to happen in our world? Is it despair or is it optimism? And it should be no surprise by this point that the answer that Solomon gives us is, well, it's honesty and faithfulness, right? It's honesty about the negativity. It's honesty about where things end up, but it's also faithfulness. It is a trust in what God is doing. And we're called to this kind of nuance. The way that Solomon 
unfolds it for us is that he reminds us that there is a curse on this world. But he also reminds us that the curse is being reversed and that we are coming back into blessing by God's own hand. So I want us to look at those two things this morning. First, the curse, and then the reverse of the curse. First, the curse. And the curse is that everything turns to dust. We experience life, and this is where those who have been negative about history are correct. We experience life as a curse. We shouldn't be surprised when the world falls apart because God promised it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was part of His curse that He put on humanity after we walked away from Him in sin. Genesis 3 is called the fall or the rebellion. This curse, the ground is cursed. Man is cursed. Woman is cursed. The beasts are cursed. That should not be a surprise to us. And then Solomon picks up on that in verse 20 of chapter 3 when he quotes that. He says, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. He's echoing back to the curse. And we've mentioned this a couple of times, but the book of Ecclesiastes is basically, you can look at it as a look at, at the Garden of Eden. As various times, in, he has mapped out um, our experience of life as both the, the garden, the beautiful th- desires that we have, but also the curse that when we walked away from God, then this world was thrown into chaos. And so here he is referring to the fall. And so we should expect, Solomon says, to experience life as dust. Everything turning to dust. Every good thing. Let me just mention four of them that he does in this passage. Four things that end up turning to dust. The first one is justice. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. What he's saying is over time, the good things, the good impulse towards fairness and rightness and goodness in the world turns to decay. There's even more description in the first verse of chapter 4 where he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Power on one side, tears on the other. Certainly seems like some some things that we're seeing on the international stage, like in Ukraine. Solomon says we should expect to see this happening where justice and authority turn to power and oppression. It happens in every sphere. It's not happening in every sphere all the time, but it does happen in every place. We know this. We know that it happens in our court systems. We know that justice is not always blind. We know that people can be wrongly convicted because of their socioeconomic status or their skin color or any number of things. Justice is not blind. We know that people can buy their way out of situations and escape justice. 
Those with influence can tip the scales. We know that this doesn't just happen in the court system. It happens in the church. Can the church be a place where justice and righteousness are ignored? Yes, we have seen this movie before. As we've heard story after story of abuse, cover-ups, protection of those in power. And sometimes I know we have this temptation to harden ourselves and to say, well, this is just the spirit of the age or this is just media overblowing things or we can give ourselves justifications. But Solomon says, this is language from him. There are oppressors and there are those who have tears. And we should expect that, that in our world we should see the center not holding, the, the things falling apart. We should be sad but not surprised. Justice turns to dust in a world that is cursed. Life itself turns to dust. As Solomon moves from justice to talk about just our mortality, Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Verse 18 shocks us. God is testing us. He's, the, the word there is actually exposing or uncovering. He's uncovering what is true, which is that we are mortal. That in this respect, we are created like the beasts. We breathe, then we don't breathe. We are substance, and then we are dust. He is not saying that in every respect, we are the same as the animals. He's saying in this respect, we die and we go into the earth. The curse affects us all equally. Even when it comes to our confidence in the afterlife, Solomon very honestly says in verse 20, maybe you wondered about this verse, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He's not saying there that he doesn't believe in in life after death. What he means is, no one can give us first-hand reporting. Who knows what actually it feels like? or We can't know what it's like on the other side. So we don't believe those stories. We don't read those stories as Christians of people who say they've gone to heaven and come back. We We don't know that. He says, when we're honest about it, death is uncertainty. Anyone who's seen someone who's passed away knows that the person is not there even to look at them. Where do they go? No one can observe. Now he's going to get to his faith right, in what God is going to do. And we're going to see the story of the Scripture unfold. We're going to see what God is going to do with life after death. But from the perspective under the sun, as we are beat down with this perspective, like we don't know. We can't know what it feels like or experience. Justice turns to dust. Life turns to dust. Work turns to dust. This very good thing that God has created us to do. To work. 
in chapter 4, starting in verse 4, he gives us a series of observations about our toil, our labor, that then ultimately end in dust. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This, is also, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. He goes into a series of things about our work that make it turn into dust. Look at the first one is envy. Everything seems to come from a perspective of being better than someone else. How much of our work is motivated by a desire to be the best or to be at least better than that person? Laziness. The fool folds his hand. This is the other extreme. Not just that we're working hard to to be the best, but some don't work at all. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. That means he loses his sense of personhood. His own identity erodes away because he does nothing. And so then he says, clearly, it's not being lazy, nor is it being envious and being motivated by that, but actually a quiet life, a focus. A handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. To have that kind of balanced life. But then he says, but then there's another kind of of way that our work turns, turns to dust. It's this fixation that we can sometimes have. Those who put their heads down and work and work and work, but for inscrutable goals. What am I working for? I keep saving. I keep working. I keep investing. I keep watching my accounts. But there's a couple of questions, he says, that we sometimes can't answer. When will be enough be enough? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? His eyes are never satisfied with rich riches. When will enough be enough and and who am I doing this for? Are we fixated in our labor? And we all know that there's a point where more doesn't add any kind of marginal benefit to our life. It's just more. Who are we building this for? Work turns to to dust. There's so many ways it can go wrong. So many ways that it can be wrongly motivated. Just like justice, just like life itself, it tends to end in a bad way. Fourth, leadership. Leadership turns to dust. Look with me at the end few verses of this chapter 4, which are hard to understand. But he says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. Along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, This is vanity and striving after the wind. What 
is going on here. These are obscure verses, and we don't fully know all of the references to what Solomon is talking about here, but his overall point seems pretty clear. Leadership turns to dust. You have this old king who used to used to be with it. He used to have it. He used to have this magnetic leadership ability. But now he's older, and there's someone younger who's coming up, and the younger person is wiser, and the younger person gains popularity, and more and more he gains influence and power. But the moment that he starts to lead this young king, his own isolation begins, and he becomes the old king, and he starts to lose his influence Perhaps is this autobiographical for the young Solomon? Did Solomon see David, the greatest king in Israel, fade as his years went on and his influence fade? Was he the young, wise leader who everybody followed? And now, as he is older and he's writing this book, is he seeing his own influence deteriorate? The dust gets in everywhere. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. Every good thing. The dust of Genesis 3.19, the curse, gets in everywhere. About eight years ago, um, I had this older uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee that I was driving that I loved. And um, it was always needing something to be fixed uh, on it. And the battery died. And I remember it, it died... Uh, I was in a parking lot somewhere and couldn't get a new battery. The shops were closed and the window was down. It was an electronic window. And so I couldn't, couldn't get the window back up because the battery had died. And of course, at that moment, this is when we were living in Chandler, uh, that's when Phoenix decided to give us a dust storm. <laughs> affectionately known as haboobs around here, if, you, if you're newer, right? These things that descend on our city, the dust comes in from the desert. And so I had to call my wife and go back home, and we couldn't do anything about the car. As the dust storm came, the dust went in through that window. And finally, when I got it home, I had to painstakingly get all of the dust, out of the knobs, out of the buttons, because it had gotten in everywhere. The curse of Genesis 3.19 is that the dust will be everywhere. Every good thing. That's what sin does. It destroys justice. It destroys life. It destroys work. It destroys leadership. It destroys every good thing. Because sin is a parasite it, it is not a thing in and of itself. It's not something that is a force against the good. It actually attaches itself to the good and it sucks the life out of it. There can be no evil without good. It is a decay. It is something that comes on to the good things that God has created and slowly makes them worse into dust. And so Solomon is very honest And while we should be extremely sad about these things, we should not be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when dictators act like dictators. When you hear about justice being perverted, you should be sad. You should be deeply sad, but you should not be surprised. When death comes to those that you love, 
You should be sad, but you shouldn't be surprised because this is what the curse does. And it is such bad news for our world. That's why it's so wrong. It's so wrong to see how bad things get, how much things fall apart. And you need to be honest about that, as we have said throughout. If you can't be honest about this, you can't receive the good news. You can't hear how God, what God is doing and how amazing it is until you see how bad the curse is. Look how bad it is for Solomon. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I mean, that is real. To get to the point where he wishes, in many ways, I wish I was never born. It's the same thing that Job says. the same thing that Jeremiah says. It's honest. Have you gotten to the point where you're basically saying, why God? Why, why the charade? Why, why the life? Why don't you come back? Why don't you make it right? Why, more, why are more babies born into this, world, this evil world? These types of questions. And that's why it is so important for us to see exactly what God is doing. He is reversing the curse. If you don't know how bad the curse is, you can't see how beautiful the reverse is. Everything turns to dust, but God redeems the dust. That is the story of Scripture. And in typical Solomon fashion, we only get hints. <laughs> He's being so focused on being real with us, we get the hints about what God is doing, but they are, they are significant anchors in this dust-filled world. And I want us to look at these three hints that we can hold on to. These three anchors. Solomon, despite how honest he is about the dust, cannot keep himself from hope. The three anchors first is this. Your faith. Solomon's faith in verse 17 is amazing. Of chapter 3. After he's just said all this thing about justice it's turned to wickedness. Righteousness has turned to wickedness. He said into his heart, verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now that is a statement of faith. That is something that he believes in. Not something that he sees. What Solomon sees is dust. What he believes is that God will sort this out. That He will not let dust corrupt everything. God is allowing this for a time, but He will not let this be true forever. There will be a time, Solomon says, by faith that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. That faith that Solomon has is a faith that we can share with Him and actually see further than Him. We see more of how God is doing this. How God is bringing this to a conclusion. How He is bringing this creation that has turned to dust into a new creation. This is the story of the Scripture that we see more unfolded than even Solomon does. 
The story starts with the beauty of the creation that God takes the dust and He forms it into a human being. And so we are His beloved dust, as the name of one book implies. We are His special creation. And that story begins with that beautiful picture that God cares about the dust. Sin takes that beautiful form and returns it back to the dust. With the wages of sin is death. What happens with the curse is that we get returned to the dust. But then the story of Scripture says that God takes that dust again and He puts flesh back on it and He makes it His special creation again with imperishable bodies. This is the resurrection. The dust that then returns to dust is then reformed from the dust into something that can never perish. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What we believe by faith. And this is only possible as the Scriptures unfold because of what Jesus does. Jesus comes into the world and His body takes on flesh. He adds that dust. And then that dust is returned to the grave. The curse affected Him. The same thing that happens to us. He went to the grave and He began to turn to dust. Three days. And then His body was re-knit. And, and Spirit animated His body. And so His resurrection shows that the dust doesn't win. And the Scriptures say that His resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. Meaning, it's the first thing that comes, but there's a big harvest coming. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ do not stay as dust. We are resurrected. And so the faith that Solomon has in saying, I trust that God is going to do something with this, we see further than him. We see our faith is in Jesus Christ who gives us the power of the resurrection. And not just us. All of creation. Justice. Life itself. Work in eternity as the new heavens and the new earth. Everything that turns to dust is then resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth. If you don't have that future hope, then you cannot help but despair at what Solomon is saying. Because under the sun, everything turns to dust. But God turns that dust back into life. He resurrects it. So we have a future hope. Is that all that we have? Is it just that we need to wait until the resurrection and the final judgment for everything to be right? Actually, no. In God's goodness, He gives us two other things that we can just mention briefly this morning. Two other anchors to hold on to while everything is turning to dust. First and foremost is your faith in what God is going to do, but secondly, He's given you a field. Your field. Solomon, again with a hint here, tells us what he's already said before multiple times. In verse 22 of chapter 3, so I saw that there is nothing better 
that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is, not the first, this is actually the third or fourth time that Solomon has talked about rejoicing in the present moment and what God has given you. But every time he talks about it, he adds a little something. It's a beautifully written book. It's amazing. In, in this case, he adds this phrase, for that is his lot. That is his lot. That is mankind's lot. The word there is an inheritance or a parcel of land, a field. And the land is the theme in the Old Testament of this hope, this future arrival when we can have the inheritance of, as God's people. He says here, each one of us receives an inheritance a lot. We are given a field. And it comes with responsibilities and it comes with rewards. If you take care of your lot, if you take care of your field, then it will give you produce of the vine. It will give you fruit. But it's work too. Its produce is real, but it's also limited. And so we say that in the meantime, when we wait for what God will do in the world, we're given a field. He's given you your family, your skills, your job, your career. And while everything else is turning to dust, He has given you something to be responsible for. Yes, it seems like in every aspect of life, things turn to dust. But you're not charged with every aspect of life. It seems like everywhere that, that we live, where we can live, there is dust. But we're not called to live everywhere. You have a lot. Solomon says you should take that, that lot, whatever God has given you, your responsibilities and your rewards, and you should make that a place where the curse is reversed. It's not the ultimate hope. We can't make the world better. We can't reverse the curse. We're waiting on God to do that. But we can take joy in the field that He's given us. And also, not just your field, but your friendships. As He says in chapter 4, verse 9, these beautiful verses often read at weddings, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if the two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. The church, as you could go further out, is better than being by yourself. We have each other. Relationships. It is the beginning of the answer to the dust in our lives that we have people to endure this place of dust with. We have people that God has given us and we help each other. We don't have to do it alone. Again, friendship will not save the world. God will save the world through the resurrection. But in the meantime, He gives us a field and He gives us friendships so that we can, in a small way, begin to reverse the curse by being together as the church. God will reverse the curse. But in the meantime, He has given us these means to enjoy 
And we should take joy in them. And we should take comfort in them. And so when we think about the trajectory of the world, is it optimism or is it pessimism? Well, we're real about the curse. But we're also, by faith, believing in what God is doing and clinging to the gifts that He has given to us along the way. This is our anchor. We should not be surprised by the curse. But by faith, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we can begin to see the curse being reversed. Let's pray. Father, your word says that even the, the faith, the faith that we have is a gift. We cannot even on our own turn to you and trust that you will make everything right. And so we ask by your spirit this morning that you would give us faith. That you would come into those places wherever the dust seems pervasive, wherever it is filled up our lives, wherever we have seen the decay of sin. And that you would give us the ability to turn towards you by faith, believing that you will, in a matter of time, make it right. Help us to cling to those gifts that you've given us in the meantime each other, our responsibilities. Father, I pray that we would take joy in those, that we would not be people of the dust, that we would actually be people who, by faith, trust that you are changing things, and we live differently, Father. We ask for your help and by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.